So it looks like uh, actually we had a pretty good count this time in terms of the number of people that signed up or the number of people that are here. So that's great. We order food to the number of the, uh, how many of you sign up. So, so make sure you sign up. And if you forget to sign up, still come, but uh, try not to make a habit of it or else we'll run out of food. The other thing I need to tell you is, I'm going to put this down a little bit. If you forget whether we're having a Bible study and what the schedule is, if you go to this website here, godscharacter.com, this is basically where I put up all of the audio and the PowerPoint slides and everything from, uh, from these lectures. So they're all up here. And uh, this was a screenshot just from a few minutes ago here this morning. But notice right here, calendar. So you can click on the calendar and you can find out uh, what the schedule is, basically. I hope to go through and actually in- incorporate in the calendar, this is what we're going to talk on this date. So you can kind of uh, look ahead just a little bit. Uh, the last thing uh, just to mention is that uh, the dean's office has actually offered to provide food for any student on campus or faculty that would like to attend. So you may invite uh, other people. Um, we just You can uh, bring your spouse if you'd like. Everyone is welcome. We just need to have an accurate count. That's the main thing. Now, I know many of you here are uh, second-year medical students, and we're here uh, I recognize many of you from last year and so are familiar with the basic approach that we're taking in this Bible study. But I want to just, just go through as an overview a little bit. And some of you might wonder, why are we spending a whole Bible study on the book of Haggai? It's two chapters long. Well, it provides a nice uh, introduction into the emphasis of this Bible study. This is a chronological Bible study. And so we have tried to go back as far as possible. Now, the Bible opens up with creation and Eve at the tree being tempted by a serpent. And so for those of you who were here a year ago might remember that the serpent at that tree kind of invited us to say, well, something was going on before the creation of this earth because there we've got uh, Satan tempting Eve at the tree. And so we spent quite a lot of time talking about perhaps what the issues were in this war in heaven. And we'll come back to that later. And just to go through chronologically in like two minutes where we are, because uh, for some of you, you might just wonder, well, Haggai, that's uh, who knows where in the world that is in terms of a chronological timeline. So, of course, we have Adam and Eve, the flood, the Tower of Babel. Things just cascade from bad to worse early on in the Bible. And what's kind of surprising, I just throw this one verse in here. Uh, I think sometimes we don't paint a picture of how dark it was. Here in the Old Testament, this verse might be a little bit shocking. In Joshua 24, long ago your forefathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the river and what were they doing and worshipped other gods. And so just to consider here that Abraham's family was worshipping other gods, um, were sometimes shocked by the God of the Old Testament. And well, this was a scary time. This was a dark time. And we need to put all of those stories in the context of a people who had very little knowledge of God. And then just to kind of pick up the chronology, we have Abraham and several hundred years later, the Exodus, the 40 years wandering. And then we talked about the kingship, Saul, David, Solomon. The bright time in the Old Testament, it would seem briefly, was during the time of Solomon. I mean, finally, God had a people who represented him. All the other nations came around and were impressed with the wisdom of Solomon. And then we just read on in that same Bible study to discover that Solomon eventually went after other gods, including the cruel god Moloch, child sacrifice. Even Solomon was involved in that. And then from there, the kingdom split. 
There was a civil war and we had Judah and Benjamin here and we had the 10 tribes of Israel over here and we had this horrible 200 year period of time. Not one of the kings of Israel were good. We have a few here of the kings of Judah who had something good about them. And here are the, again, chronologically, what we went through last year was Elijah, Elisha, Jonah, Amos, Hosea, Micah, Isaiah, not as they are in the Bible, but chronologically where they fit. And so we have a 200-year period of time coming down here to 722 B.C., and that was the Assyrian captivity. And these 10 tribes, gone forever, assimilated into Assyrian culture, and all we have left are the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. Paul was a Benjamite. Okay, then we have a brief time, just about 120 years or so after the Assyrian captivity, where we have the kings of Judah. Manasseh killed so many people, the streets flowed with blood, and we have this horrible record all the way down to 586, well, between 600 and 586, where now the Babylonians invaded Jerusalem, and there were actually three captivities or three invasions. The first, Daniel was taken out. The second invasion, Ezekiel was taken out. And then the third invasion, Jeremiah was taken out into captivity. So the book we finished on last time was the book of Daniel. And the reason is, again, chronologically, Daniel gave a message throughout the 70 years of captivity. And so where we are right now is it's after the 70 years and the people are encouraged to come back, rebuild the temple. Okay, and that's where the book of Haggai comes in. Just one verse I thought was helpful. I wish we had time to now go through every single Old Testament story, the flood, Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, And just to review all of that, obviously there isn't time, but let me just list one verse that's been helpful for me. God would say, the people of Israel are as stubborn as mules. How can I feed them like lambs in a meadow? And what we have in the Old Testament is God again and again and again dealing with stubborn mules. Now, how do you reach a stubborn mule? Gentle words. You have to speak the language that a stubborn mule can understand. And so we have some hard stories, some hard words, and they only make sense, I think, if we put them in the context of a very, very rebellious time. So we are right here after the fall of Jerusalem in 586, uh, the edict of Cyrus to go back to Jerusalem and Haggai and next time Zechariah were two prophets that preached a message during this time as the people were coming back and trying to rebuild the city and to rebuild the temple. So I think one thing we just would have to say, we would all have to agree, whether we appreciate the Bible or not, that the Bible is certainly the most read and the most misread book in human history. Um, The Bible can be used to justify anything from starting a war to bombing an abortion clinic to you name it. And so we need to have an anchor, a focus, as we go through the Bible. And I hope that will come out here in this Bible study. And before we begin Haggai, just one thing on this, the words of Jesus, who said to some very serious Bible students, You have your heads in your Bibles constantly. Wouldn't that be a good thing? You have your heads in your Bibles constantly because you think you'll find eternal life there. Isn't that true? Don't we find eternal life in the Bible? But you miss the forest for the trees. Here, the colorful message Bible. These scriptures are all about me. So the Bible is just a book with words unless it is a book about a person. The Bible is to reveal the person of Jesus Christ. And eternal life is through this person. And what we will try to do in this Bible study is to tie every book, Old Testament, to Jesus Christ. Let's pray as we begin.
Dear Father, we ask for your presence just now. We know that you are here. Please come close to each one of us. May medical school not just be a drudgery, work, 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 but also, God, may you be with these students. May you enter into a relationship with them. And uh, may this uh, coming closer to you, this relationship, this at-one-ment process, begin now and every day in our lives. Amen. So next time, Zechariah. But I'm going to use just one verse in Zechariah because it just tells the story of what's going on. Then the angel said, Almighty Lord, you have been angry with Jerusalem and the cities of Judah for 70 years now. And many of you know we've spent a long time talking about what is God's anger. Uh, We'll come to that in Romans. But how much longer will it be before you show them mercy? The Lord answered the angel with comforting words. And the angel told me to proclaim what the Lord Almighty had said. I have a deep love and concern for Jerusalem, my holy city. My temple will be restored and the city will be rebuilt. Now, the problem is what had gone on is the people had come back, many of them, but almost 20 years had elapsed and no one was building the temple. And so the prophet Haggai was really given the mission to stimulate the people to begin rebuilding this temple. The Lord Almighty said to Haggai, these people say that this is not the right time to rebuild the temple. The Lord then gave this message to the people through the prophet Haggai. My people, why should you be living in well-built houses while my temple lies in ruins? Don't you see what is happening to you? You've planted much grain, but have harvested very little. You have food to eat, but not enough to make you full. You have wine to drink, but not enough to get drunk on. You have clothing, but not enough to keep you warm. And workers cannot earn enough to live on. Can't you see why this happened? Now go up into the hills, get lumber, and rebuild the temple. Then I will be pleased and will be worshipped as I should be. So the message is, come on, you guys, let's rebuild the temple. Temple, the symbol of God's presence, the place of worship, was not being rebuilt. And the people needed much encouragement. A few verses later, God would say, is there anyone among you who can still remember how splendid the temple used to be? And there were many people there who remembered Solomon's temple that was burned to the ground. How does it look to you now? It must seem like nothing at all. But now don't be discouraged, any of you. Do the work for I am with you. And so the people did work. And within a short period of time, the foundation of the temple was laid. And this passage here is the, going to be the singular focus here of the next uh, 30 minutes or so. God would say, my spirit remains among you, just as I promised you when you came out of Egypt. So do not be afraid, for this is what the Lord Almighty says. In just a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth. I will shake the oceans and the dry land too. I will shake all the nations and the treasures of all the nations will come to this temple. Here's the key part. I will fill this place with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, says the Lord Almighty. The future glory of this temple will be greater than its past glory, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will bring peace. I, the Lord Almighty, have spoken. Now, the problem with this is Um, The promise here, this place, this temple, will have greater glory than Solomon's temple? I mean, we just read on around this. Well, let's just go back to King Solomon's temple. I mean, this was a spectacular structure physically, but also it had this incredible manifestation of God's presence. When King Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven, burned up the sacrifices that had been offered, and the dazzling light of the Lord's presence filled the temple. We have no description of that happening with this temple. 
that was built in Haggai's time. And in fact, the people who knew about Solomon's temple that watched the laying down of the foundation of this new temple, when it was built, uh, this was their reaction. Many of the older priests, Levites, and heads of clans had seen the first temple. And as they watched the foundation of this temple being laid, they cried and wailed. It was so inferior to Solomon's temple. So again, our question is, uh, failed prophecy, or uh, how is it that this later temple would actually, uh, would seem to be much more spectacular? And it all has to do, I think, with how do we understand God's glory? The future glory of this temple will be greater than its past glory. If you had to substitute another word for glory, uh, what would you put in there? I know for most of my life, I'd associated it with power, brightness, might, those kinds of things. Well, keep that question in mind. This is what we're going to try to answer. And uh, fortunately, the Bible gives us abundant evidence, I think, to what the ultimate glory of God is. We go all the way back to Moses. Remember, Moses was bold enough. You know, Moses spoke face to face with God as a man speaks with a friend. And he would say to God, now, show me your glory. And I still remember reading this for the first time. And I was getting excited. We're going to get to see what God looks like. We'll get a description of his face, nose, eyes, hair, something. And you read on. Uh, what is Moses about to see? And here's the description. The Lord came down in a cloud, stood with him there, and pronounced his holy name, the Lord. The Lord then passed by in front of him. Now we'll get to see. And called out, I, the Lord, am a God who is full of compassion and pity, who is not easily angered, and who shows great love and faithfulness. I keep my promise for thousands of generations and forgive evil and sin. So Moses asked to see the glory of God, and instead, what does God do? He comes down and pronounces his holy name, and we get a description of God's character. And the point that I'm going to try to make here is that the ultimate glory of God is his person, his character, his name. Name is character in the Bible. Uh, we all admire and worship and are you know, in awe of God's power. No one denies that God has the power. But the ultimate glory, as I understand it, is what God is like in person. And let's go through this a little bit. I think anytime we answer a big question like this, we have to go all the way back to the beginning. And we could try to answer this question from many different angles. But for the purpose of illustration, let's go all the way back to this conflict that arose in heaven. Remember, we have a serpent in the tree. Something's going on before the creation of our world. What were the issues in this cosmic conflict? The book of Revelation speaks of a war. War broke out in heaven. The huge dragon was thrown out. And it's kind of almost humorous here how John mixed, wants to make sure we're associating this great dragon with someone. That ancient serpent named the devil or Satan. I mean, he's really emphasizing this here. That deceived the whole world. Okay, now how many, uh, what is the, the term ancient serpent? What does that draw us back to? How many ancient serpents? I mean, wouldn't this bring us right back to the tree and suggest that ancient serpent of old was none other than Satan that deceived the whole world, the human race. And uh, what I would just like to assume, we take as an assumption, don't have time to go into this in detail, is that the deception at the tree, 
that that gives us a pretty good idea that however it was that Satan deceived the angels and that the issues involved, he has refined this to a fine art. And now he comes down to the tree and he has a conversation with Eve. And I think understanding why is God's character such a big issue, uh, we get that from the very beginning of the Bible and it runs all the way through. There's a, a just a, well, satanic three-pronged lie here at the tree that is very harmful. Now, see if you can pick out the lie in Satan's first words to Eve. Now, the serpent was more crafty, subtle, cunning than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Is that absolutely true? Or is there something implied there? Did God say you can't eat the fruit from any tree in the garden? Did God say you can't eat the fruit from any tree in the garden? No, we have God's words. You may eat the fruit of any tree in the garden, just not this one. So again, the very subtle implication is, uh, you know what, you can't eat any fruit in this garden, can you? God's kind of a control freak. He's restrictive of your freedom. Okay, very subtle. It's interesting. Eve replies with something that uh, we don't know that God actually said to her. Eve said, well, we may eat the fruit of any tree in the garden, except the tree in the middle of it. God told us not to eat the fruit of that tree or even touch it. Okay, we don't have record of God saying that. Uh, but then she went on to say, if we do, we will die. And then the snake replied, that's not true. You will not die. In essence, what is Satan claiming here? God is a liar. He's an untrustworthy liar. He just told you something that is absolutely false. God has lied to you. I mean, what he is trying to do is he's trying to break the trust that Eve has in God, and he does that by attacking God's character. He's not a God of freedom. He's an untrustworthy liar. And then the last part of it here is Satan said, God said that because he knows that when you eat it, you will be like God and know what is good and what is bad. In other words, Eve, you're really not good enough. If you eat this fruit, I mean, look at me, talking snake. Um, God has not made you quite good enough. And if you eat this fruit, boy, you will just be on an elevated plane. But again, implies God wanted to keep her down there. Defective merchandise. So the point here is, Again, that Satan continually, we see through the Bible and through false prophets and so on, works on attacking God's character. Because if we have a false picture of God, you're not going to trust a God like that. It breaks any relationship from happening. And so the central issue uh, in this great controversy ultimately is God's person, his character. So that evening they heard the Lord God walking in the garden and they hid from him among the trees. But the Lord God called out to the man, where are you? And I've seen so many kids books where God is like an angry tyrant running through the garden, chasing after them. Where are you? He knew where they were, right? I mean, this is really the most gentle way uh, just to call out. Hey, where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid and hid from you because I was naked. Now, are Adam and Eve hiding in the bushes? Are they afraid of God or Satan? They're afraid of God. I mean, that untrustworthy liar is coming after them in the garden. I mean, they have totally misunderstood who God is. They don't trust him. And really, that is the story of the entire Old Testament. Um, in fact, if we could ask, who was that God that came walking in the garden and called out, where are you? Would you say it was the Father, Son, Holy Spirit? Does it matter? Should it matter? 
really shouldn't matter, shouldn't it? I mean, Jesus would say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. But I think we could make a pretty good case for saying that that really was the Son, Jesus. Paul would say, all ate, talking about the children of Israel wandering through the wilderness, all ate the same spiritual bread and drank the same spiritual drink. They drank from the spiritual rock that went with them, and that rock was Christ himself. So I would like to take the position that the God of the Old Testament that we talk about so much was none other than Jesus. Now, we will spend a lot of time, maybe more than any other question, trying to reconcile a gentle Jesus and a violent Bible. It's a big issue, but Jesus would appear to be that God in the Old Testament. Jesus himself would make this claim so many times. And you will die in your sins if you do not believe that I am who I am. Same name used by the God who talked to Moses at the burning bush, the I am. And then he would say, when you lift up the Son of Man, you will know that I am who I am. And then finally in this passage, just one passage in John 8, Jesus would say, I am telling you the truth. Before Abraham was born, I am. And of course, you remember the reaction at that time of the Pharisees was to pick up stones to stone Jesus because this is blasphemy. They know he's claiming to be none other than the living God. And the example I like the best is actually in Gethsemane where the men are coming with clubs to get Jesus and Jesus stepped forward and asked them, who is it you were looking for? Jesus of Nazareth, they answered. I am he. Now, if you have a King James Bible, you'll notice that the he is in italics, which means it's added. Jesus literally said, I am. And when Jesus said to them, I am, they moved back and fell to the ground. I mean, he declared himself to be the living God right before those people as they were coming at him, and they all just fell backwards. Okay, so Jesus is God in human form, and he's the God of the Old Testament. And so, again, to these very serious Bible students in Jesus' day, we read this passage, but it just ties in so well here that... These scriptures are all about Jesus. Jesus is not a new figure that came along in human history 2,000 years ago. He's God who came in human form. The entire Bible is the story of Jesus, who is none other than God. So here's the problem. Basically, since the garden, the human race has been hiding in the bushes from a false conception of who God is. And if you look at the essence of paganism all the way through the Bible there's one core feature of paganism, and that is the gods are always angry. They always need to be appeased. They need child sacrifice. They need lots of flowing blood. Uh, The gods are angry. This is the god Moloch, who Solomon worshipped for a period of time, and this is a god whose hands are heated by a fire, and then babies are placed in his hands. The gods are always angry. It's the hallmark of paganism. God is not like that. How does God reveal to people hiding in the bushes that he's not like that? Well, he says it so many times in words in the Old Testament. I'll just point to a few examples. In Hosea, God would say, there's no faithfulness, no kindness, no knowledge of God in your land. Knowledge of what? Facts? Dates? No, knowledge. It's it's an intimate, personal, relational knowledge based on his character. My people are being destroyed. Here it is very clearly. My people are being destroyed because they don't know me. It's all your fault, you priests, for you yourselves refuse to know me. And very significant, these words, to know. Adam knew Eve, and they had a child. They didn't become acquainted. To know always means in this very personal, relational way. They've exchanged the glory of God, there it is again, for the disgrace 
of idols. Hosea 6.6, 6, what I want from you is plain and clear. I want your constant love, not your animal sacrifices. I would rather have my people know me than burn offerings to me. What God really wants is clear. He wants an intimate, knowing relationship that's reinforced so many times. Just one more from the Old Testament, Isaiah 1. I raised my children and helped them grow, but they've rebelled against me. Oxen know their owners and donkeys know where their masters feed them, but Israel doesn't know its owner. My people don't understand who feeds them. Okay, so there is a lack of knowledge about God. And God came in human form ultimately to restore us to trust, to reveal his character that we might trust him once again. And um, the words of Jesus, this is the night before he died. I mean, you would think if he's going to say something, it's pretty significant. And just the words themselves, so weighty, this is eternal life. If we just think, how would you fill in the blank? This is eternal life. Um, Isn't the knee-jerk response to say, well, living forever? I mean, it's pretty basic. And Jesus would define eternal life this way, to know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you sent. In fact, how do we know God? It is through Jesus, ultimately. On earth, I have given you glory by finishing the work. Many versions will say the mission, singular, that you gave me to do. Okay, what was the work? What was the mission of Jesus in coming? I made your name known to the people you gave me. The work, the mission of Jesus was to reveal the character of God, the character of the Father, the character of the Son. They're one and the same. So uh, this passage here, this last part, I made your name known, just some other translations of this. I love the Message Bible. I spelled out your character. That was his mission. In the NIV, I revealed you. Contemporary English is really well done here. I have shown them what you are like, and I have manifested your name. Name is character. Okay, so God came to reveal what he is like. So many of these books in the New Testament open up this way because this just would seem to be it. John 1, no one has ever seen God. That is, no one has ever really seen God. The only son who is the same as God and is at the Father's side, he has made him known. He came to make known the Father. 1 John 1, we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. Again, how would you finish the verse? Why did the Son of God come? What understanding did he come to give us? So that we know the true God. We live in union with the true God, in union with his Son, Jesus Christ. This, Jesus, is the true God, and this is eternal life. Once again, eternal life, not defined in terms of how long it lasts, but in terms of the essence of what the eternal life experience is which ultimately, if this is the definition of eternal life, it is not something we just hang around and get old and die and then we have eternal life. It's something that begins now if it's about a knowing relationship with a person. So coming back to this verse in Haggai, I will fill this place with glory. The future glory of this temple will be greater than its past glory. I mean, I would interpret the greatest event, not just in world history, but universal history, is ultimately God entering the womb and becoming a person, a human being, and revealing what he's like. I mean, this was the temple that Jesus walked. This was the temple where Jesus taught and revealed what God is like, the ultimate glory. And so I think that's the fulfillment of this prophecy. And if just in a few minutes, well, the last verse I like to associate with this, Isaiah 52 and 53, it's all messianic, describing the humble servant that would come. And in the middle of it, 
We have this description. They will see and understand something they had never known. What is it that the Christ event brings us to see and understand that we had never known? Uh, was the world uh, debating whether God was powerful? That's never been an issue uh, up until recent uh, human history. Jesus didn't come to reveal God has power. He revealed that. Look at all the miracles he did. But ultimately, he came to reveal what God's character is like, and no one expected God to look like Jesus. No one expected God to be humble and to reveal all the kinds of things uh, that Jesus did about God. So if we just in a few minutes here go through and describe what did we learn about God through the life of Jesus. And we're, we're going to be in the New Testament very soon, so we'll have much time to go through this in detail. But I mean, just the thought that God would spend nine months in the womb, I mean, that is rather shocking. Just the thought that God would spend his first night in a feeding trough, that's rather shocking. Not what you would predict of the all-powerful God. Uh, we can't choose where we're born. We can't choose our parents. Uh, but God comes, and where does he grow up? In a place where it was said, can any good thing come from Nazareth? Why is God choosing such humble beginnings? You know, you'd think he'd be born in a palace, and he'd be honored from the very beginning. didn't happen that way. And so as we consider the life of Jesus, I think it's helpful to remember in every word and every action of Jesus that these words run in our mind. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And when Jesus say, the Father and I are one. And so we are continually reinforced. God is like that. God is like that. God is like that. It really is the pinnacle uh, moment, certainly, uh, in the Bible. So what else do we learn? Uh, just a few things. Is this our picture of God? When the Pharisees saw him keeping this kind of company, they had a fit and lit into Jesus' followers. What kind of example is this from your teacher acting cozy with crooks and riffraff? Now, you can read it in other versions, but it's very clear. Jesus was hanging out with the low life of society. And for the pious religious scholars, I mean, certainly God does not hang out with the riffraff of society. Is our picture of God that he is so holy that he cannot see what is going on in the riffraff of society. God came in human form and ate with and talked with the riffraff of society, and that's God. What about this? A man suffering from a dreaded skin disease came to Jesus, of course, leprosy, knelt down and begged him for help. Now, what would be the parallel, maybe medical condition to leprosy today? That is often a social outcast by some in religious circles. Certainly AIDS. Okay, we wonder how does God look at someone like that? If you want to, he said, you can make me clean. And Jesus was filled with pity. Now, I just imagine here, you know, many consider Peter to be the one, Mark was Peter's gospel. Whoever penned this looked in the face of Jesus at this moment and somehow his face was filled with pity as he looked on this man. And he reached out and touched him I do want to, he answered, be clean. Of course, we miss the emotion uh, sometimes when we read the words on the page. But if we want to know God's face towards the social outcasts of society, if Jesus is God, it becomes rather clear what God's attitude is uh, toward the social outcasts. Of course, to the woman caught in adultery, did she come to Jesus asking to be forgiven? I mean, she was just grabbed and thrown at his feet. And his words to her were, I do not condemn you. Now, we'll need to reconcile Old Testament verses where these people were to be stoned. But the clearest revelation of who God is is God in human form. And his words to her were, I do not condemn you. 
And when Jesus would say about himself, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lie down and rest, uh, do you imagine that the Father could say something like that? Father and I are one. This is what God is like. Had no place to lie down and rest. Or when Jesus would say, place my yoke over your shoulders and learn from me because I am gentle and humble, is the Father in any way different than the Son? No. God the Father, the all-powerful God, is gentle and humble. We have to incorporate all of this into our picture of who God is. And this one, uh, I know many of you here from last year will remember this, but for me it's just such a powerful illustration. In this setting, Jesus, his disciples are just falling apart. They're arguing about who's going to be first in the kingdom. Judas has already betrayed Jesus into the hands of the Pharisees. Uh, The disciples don't know about it yet. There's chaos. And then we have this incredible passage. Jesus knew that the Father had given him complete power Okay, now we think now he's going to show some muscle. He's going to fire from heaven. Something like that's going to happen. He knew that he had come from God and was going to God. So what Jesus did with this knowledge of complete power is he rose from the table, took off his outer garment and tied a towel around his waist and proceeded to wash 11 pairs of dirty feet, 12. He washed the feet of Judas. I mean, it is incredible to think of God coming in human form and washing the feet of his betrayer the night before he died. And then he went on to tell us, after washing their feet, now that you've seen me do this, how happy you will be if you do the same. And that's not encouraging us to have a foot washing service. That's encouraging us to love and to treat our enemies in the same way that Jesus Christ did. And then, of course, uh, his death on the cross We'll spend much time talking about what happened, why did Jesus have to die, what is the importance of that. Um, So there's always a risk of of saying something uh, uh, in a nutshell. But it seems to me that, uh, at least for most of my life, uh, perhaps, the cross was viewed as something that was me-centered. It's good for me. Uh, I get to go to heaven because of what Jesus did for me. And I guess the, the change in emphasis that has occurred in my own thinking is to just realize that that is God in human form that is dying. And to consider, look at what God is like. God is dying, God in human form. And as he dies, he looks out on those that tortured him to death and said, Father, forgive them. It is the most spectacular spectacular revelation of who God is. And then, of course, he's resurrected. Now we're going to see some brights, a big light show. And, of course, Mary comes down to the tomb and in her tears, she looked at him and she thought he was the gardener. Okay, still revealing a humble picture of who God is. And so a last verse just that ties in with Haggai so well, I think. Hebrews 1. He, Jesus, reflects the brightness of God's glory. Is that a physical brightness? I mean, other than the Mount of Transfiguration, did Jesus walk around like a bright, super bright being? No, the brightness of God's character. And he is the exact likeness of God's own being. So our focus as we go through, even through the rest of the Old Testament, is to try to allow the light from the cross, from the life and death of Jesus, uh, to illuminate every story, every verse in the Bible. Let's pray. Dear Father, once again, we ask that um, this time, and especially for these students, during probably the busiest time of life, that uh, you would be a part of it, that uh, this would also be a time where they can come closer to you and experience who you are. And uh, just pray that you would bless this Bible study and that somehow the light of who you are may become brighter and brighter in their lives and in my life as well as we talk about you together. Amen.